You're listening to the Today's Wills and Probate podcast, one of the leading sources of information for the wills and probate sector. Don't forget to subscribe and sign up to our free newsletter at todayswillsandprobate.co.uk and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Hello, welcome along to the latest Today's Wills and Probate podcast. Today, I'm talking to Dan Garrett. Dan is the CEO of Fairwill. And we were just saying before we started recording, Dan, the industry is very divided on Fairwill. So this could be an interesting discussion, but it's great to have you on the podcast and, and you know, really, really appreciate you agreeing to come on and, and chat. Oh, total pleasure. It's so it's it's so nice to nice to be here, and I I hope by the end of this, anyone listening feels less divided. Uh, but that might not be the outcome. I always have a first question, which is around who you are, what you do, and all the rest of it. So I've I've given a bit of an introduction to you, but tell me a bit about yourself, what you do, and and sort of where Fairwill kind of came from, really. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I've been running the company for almost eight years. I'm one of the co-founders. Um, so I set up the business in 2015. It doesn't feel like that long ago. Yeah, yeah. And it also feels like a thousand years ago at the same time. Um, <laughs> so probably a bit of a non-standard route into the industry where I'm from a maths and engineering background. That's what I studied. Um, and then I went into design. Uh, so I went to the Royal College of Art and did this amazing course that basically took people from a science background and mixed us up with brilliant industrial graphic product service designers um, and people who who, who had a sort of business track record. And we did this master's course that was two years long. It was split between Tokyo, New York and London. It was, um, it was amazing. Really just the most amazing thing I've ever done. Uh, apart from farewell, obviously, worth saying. <laughs> <laughs> so... When I was in Japan, I spent quite a few months working in a geriatric care home. And in Japan, there's obviously this issue with a a really aging population. You know, they're extrapolated graphs of of the shape of different, uh, you know, who's in different uh, age ranges. It's Mm -hmm. quite unlike anywhere else in the world, to be honest. And when I was there, I felt like we really missed the point as designers. We focused on the physical side of aging. It was just getting in and out of bed and up and down the stairs rather than the fact that people were terrified of dying. They didn't have their friends or family around and they had no way of talking about it. And when I came back to the UK, I, I couldn't really get that out of my head. I, I thought, what, what, a, what a fascinating part of life to focus on. And I spent a couple of months in the death industry. So I was mystery shopping funeral directors, helping people to organize funerals whilst I was still at the Royal College of Art. I, I started learning about will writing from uh, Parker's Modern Will Precedents, um, which is a fantastic book. I'm sure lots of the listeners will have it uh, just right next to their bed. Um, and also helped a couple of friends who were going through the probate process to deal with the forms or the administration side of things. Basically had this realization that was this is a huge consumer industry and it's been untouched, not just by technology, but by any kind of customer centricity. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that as a pop shot to the, for the most part, fantastic people I've met who are funeral directors, who are family sisters and paralegals, who are really dedicated to great customer outcomes. 
but the service looks and feels like it did you know especially the funeral side of things 200 years ago sure and um you know it isn't because it's macroeconomically impossible this is this sort of 100 billion dollar plus global market it isn't because it's technologically unfeasible to drive any kind of change it's because you know, there's this profound human aversion to talking about and dealing with death and in place of actually having that really meaningful conversation about the fact that we are all going to die it tends to have kind of scope of for scope creep of the formality and and legal technicalities of it replacing what's at the heart of someone writing their will which is wanting to take care of the things and the people that they love or wanting to go through the funeral process which is you know celebrating and remembering someone's life and the impact they have on other people so it's like you know we're so bad at talking about those things that what ends up displacing the emotional driver is a lot of the practicalities and and that to me felt like something i wanted to dedicate a serious chunk of time to to improving so forgive me but how does technology play a role in something that you're describing as inherently human yeah yeah that's a that's a great question i think i think it's often a misconception that technology sanitizes things i would say it has the opposite effect in some really interesting ways. So I'll take you right back to the beginning of the company to give you a good example of it. The first version of Farewell was for my final show in the Royal College of Art. And and at that exhibition, 80,000 people come to it, amazing paintings, sculptures, the rest of it. And together with the people I started uh, the business with, we, we made a really simple will writing website. It's very beautifully designed. And, and we had this huge queue of people wanting to use it. And we focused from the outset on one number, which was the percentage of people who included personal messages or funeral wishes in their wills. So rather than it being, right, let's get this sorted, legally buttoned up, dot the I's and cross the T's, it was doing that in a way that helped to really explain the technicalities of it, but also focusing on, on the emotional engagement um, and we went from 1% of customers, including those sort of sentiments, which is, or at least at that point was the industry average, to 80% of our customers writing the most amazing heartfelt things in their wills. And I don't think we, you know, if you're sat face to face with with a solicitor, I think those those things can sometimes be harder to do with someone else around. So what we found is that by giving tools to empower people to make these decisions themselves, they actually were engaging with it emotionally in a different way. Well, that's a really interesting kind of, almost a dichotomy, isn't it? How, how did how did that kind of realization come about? Um, I think just through experimentation, realistically. And uh, there's a couple of other things. We've learned some really interesting things over time. P- people don't want a, a digital will computer. That's not what anyone wants. No, no, and actually people don't get out of bed and say, I want an online will, or I want a telephone will, or I want a face-to-face will. They just want a will. And they want it to be high quality for a fair price and done conveniently. And and often, I think, you know, the, at least when we started the company, the people who were on the more uh, anti-farewell side of the spectrum were very much like, no, it has to be, you know, it has to be done in this way. Well, yeah, there was huge intestacy rates in, in the UK. You can't, you, you can't just say this is the right way of doing things and therefore forevermore they shall be done in this way. You know, if things are too expensive, if they're inaccessible people, to people who don't have the time or resources to, uh, to write their will in, in a traditional way, then that's not good design. But good design is getting people the outcome that they're looking for. So 
I think what we've really tried to do is to make our service really accessible, make it really high quality in terms of, you know, the wills properly meeting the outcomes that people are looking for. Most important thing, honestly, in will writing is just how people discover the service in the first place. We are psychologically hardwired to not write our wills because no one thinks they're going to die today or tomorrow. So it's always at the bottom of your to-do B list. And it doesn't matter how high quality the will writing service is or whatever. It's how do you get someone to start today? And that's where we focus a lot of our attention and where digital does come into play. What you have with a digital service is the ability to reach someone at the right time in their home rather than I've got to make some calls and I have to figure out who the will writing service is and I've got to drive to have an appointment and then another one and then another one over the next two months. It's it's, it's, uh, convenience. It levels the playing field in terms of access to services. And that's where digital can make a huge difference. So I know this is a bone of contention, Dan, because we've chatted about it, but you, you wouldn't necessarily describe yourself as an online will writer. No, definitely not. I mean, you know, every will that we write gets checked by a specialist in our team. All of our uh, will writing processes and our clauses have been developed by our in-house legal team. We have some real field leading legal talent inside our team, plus the fact that we do a serious volume of um, telephone wills. It isn't just people who are using our, our online first service. So there's a there's a real level of human interaction on both of our products. And we always talk about it in customer terms. So customers don't think I want an online will or a telephone will. They think I want a will and what's the most appropriate way to get it done. So, so yeah, I mean, you know, there's elements of our marketing messaging sometimes that will highlight whether something is online or telephone for particular reasons at different times. But, but no, we really think about it as uh, the best way to make a will. Um, and and that's, our, that's our goal as an organisation in terms of quality and uh, affordability and, 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 and convenience. And you've touched on it there, but that quality management piece is so important. I mean, how are you managing that? How are you making sure that if it is digital first, that it, it then is, is legally accurate binding and, and, you know, and we reduce that risk of, of contentious issues in the, in the future? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and, you know, that's a that's a that's a more difficult thing to do when you're not speaking to every customer um, and getting a really comprehensive understanding of their needs. So so I would be completely lying if I said, um, you know, we can do the belt and braces solicitor approach to uh, customer experience. So what we do is we triage our customers. And if there's any reason or a substantial reason to think that our online product isn't going to be right for them, then they go to our telephone service. So really what our online experience is, is a mass market. Uh, you don't have foreign assets or, or things that are more complex to deal with. And then we deal with it in a couple of ways. Firstly, the nature of our service isn't that we can provide the solicitor experience. It's just not what we do. We don't price like that and it isn't what we claim to do. Secondly, we take huge pride in the quality of the information on our website so that people can effectively self-serve their way through the product. Thirdly, we have live customer support. That's a significant team inside the business to mean that you know, if someone doesn't understand something, we can help them immediately. And lastly, we have our will checking process where we'll, you know, if there's any reason to think that a customer might have made a mistake or, or not been clear on something, then we communicate with that customer, make sure they understand it and finally approve the will for them to get signed and witnessed. 
And you touched on it there about the fact that it's a mass market product. Have you got sort of stats around demographics and, and who's who's using Farewell for their wills and, and who isn't? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so it tends to be 98th percentile in terms of um, wealth. So top 2%, you know, we're realistically not the right fit for today. Um, tends to be people who might already have a solicitor or an IFA, and we don't give tax advice. So top 2%, we tend not to be the best solution for. Um, in terms of geography, we're very nationally representative, which we're quite proud of. Gender, same. Um, and age is a really interesting one where I think the assumption from partners that we meet, if it's banks or mortgage brokers or other people in the industry, is that we write will for 21-year-olds. And you know, the average age of our customers is in their 50s. So, right. so we're, we have a pretty broad standard deviation. So it isn't, you know, it isn't like, oh, we've smashed it. We have great product fit, market fit for 51 to 54-year-olds. We have a broad standard deviation of the ageism and, and sort of wealth profiles of our, of our customers, which is something we've had to build over time. I think there was a point in time five or six years ago when the people we were appealing to most was kind of first-time will writers in their 30s, bought a house, had a kid, uh, just get it done really quickly. And actually, over time, we've improved the sophistication, quality of experience, um, and positioning of what we do to address a, a, a bigger market opportunity. And you've, you've kind of alluded to it in some of what you've said, and we talked at the start about the fact that Farewell isn't universally popular, but did you expect the pushback from the community that you've you've had? Um, I don't think we've had that much pushback, actually. Um, you know, people just have a, have a very different mentality. And, and if we, we have some absolutely wonderful solicitors in our business who've spent their whole careers working in in family law environments and this is not to say that solicitors aren't innovative i really think some of the most innovative people in our company are solicitors there can be a bit of a philosophical difference for someone who's grown up in an environment that's always about doing the absolute right process and leaving no room for risk or error if that's your constraint for operating a business sure yeah, that's a that is a those are tight constraints, and it's hard to do anything differently, and it's hard to respond to the actual needs of customers who you don't have product met for market fit for, whether it's on price or accessibility or time it takes to go through the process. So, so I think you know we're obviously starting from a different standpoint of what our customers needs and how can we best meet them, and then we work with our solicitors to operate and. The business in a way that really reduces risk so so i think for the most part you know, most people i encounter who are at the leading edge in the field on the solicitor side of things or more traditional side of things actually really see and understand what we're doing and they're interested in it and it's kind of a different business model you know a lot of family solicitors are focused on where there's a real need for advice and you know, isn't the funnest thing in the world if you're writing 50 wills a month or something and, and actually they're all exactly the same. Mm-hmm. You know, these are people who are real experts in 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 what they're doing. And 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 I find there's a kind of drive towards more sophisticated will writing. But but you know, people people don't necessarily like what we do and they might disagree with it. But customer reputation stands for itself, our, our reputation with our partners stands for itself and and the North Star for us isn't what our competitors think of us, it's what our customers think of us. Can we move on to explore 
some of the growth that you've experienced over the last eight years and and you were probably one of the first organizations to really kind of take on funding I think weren't you particularly in this space was it always your intention to go down that route or or yeah what was the driver behind that it's, it's really interesting it's a it's a very it's pretty fragmented the market in will writing and it's quite hard to do customer acquisition you know, if you compare it to lots of more modernized industries the evolution and sophistication of customer acquisition has really developed over the last couple of decades from being your local high street travel agent to being multi-channel above the line campaigns backed up with performance marketing ppc seo and it's kind of interesting just from a you know if you zoomed out and took an outsider perspective on the market you're thinking right this is really important this is the most important financial decision that people ever make in their life it's the biggest by far in terms of total volume it's also a huge emotional decision when you're writing a will it has massive impact on the people that you leave behind and yet the sector is really fragmented and unsophisticated when it comes to acquiring customers the average person's experience of finding somewhere to write their will goes something like, oh, I asked my dad and my dad's friend knows a guy and that's where we went to write our will. And that's great. That's that's a that's a fantastic way to do business because it's trust-based, you know? You you earn the trust of people in your local community by providing them with a great service. And I, I wouldn't ever want to discount that way of doing business, but it is not how most business gets done. And that doesn't matter whether you're 75 years old or whether you're 30 years old. You know, the shift towards how customers uh, find services is massively in the digital direction. And for whatever reason, law firms, you know, sole practitioners, people who are writing wills, I don't think can necessarily make the business case to develop great websites, great marketing teams, great brand campaigns to raise the profile of, of, of what they do and to cut through to a more modern consumer. So our take on it was, well, um, it's a big market opportunity. We need to play big in order to, to win it. And we want the resources to build the you know, de facto place to go to write your will. And I think you know, to some extent we've, we've been able to deliver on that idea and really differentiate ourselves in how we acquire customers as well as how we then serve them. And what's sort of the next, the next bit of that, that story? Are you going to continue to seek funding? Are you now self-funding? What's the, uh, what's the sort of the situation as, as it stands? I think we're always uh, opportunistic when we see uh, an exciting avenue for exploration that we think we can you know, get a return on investment for, for our shareholders, then, then we're always open to raising money. But you know, over the last few years, we've got the business to a point where it's, it's much more stable. I wouldn't say no, and there are still significant opportunities to go after in each of our three products. So we obviously started out in wills, then probate, and then funerals. And I think we're still part way through realizing our aspiration of having a kind of one-stop shop to deal with everything to do with death. You know, we've, we've got our specialisms in each of those products and we're doing some really interesting stuff in terms of how we link them together, but I think we can still improve it. Can you elaborate? Um, well, obviously, you know, the wills to probate journey is is something that the sector understands really well in terms of getting executor inclusion. That for us, we're able to do on 
a quite sophisticated basis because the amount of data that we have. Right. So part of it is understanding propensity of people to need our executive service, our, our probate services, whether or not they appoint us as an executor. That's been quite an interesting bit of work. Then also the relationship between our funerals business and our probate business and how you can create a really seamless journey for someone who's just lost, you know, lost someone that they really love to help them navigate both of those situations without having to decide where they want to do the funeral on one hand, decide when they want to do probate on the other hand. If we can um, offer the best value, the best experience for doing them combined, that's that's starting to be um, quite exciting. And then we're also subject to FCA approval, launching our funeral planning proposition which I think is going to be a really interesting product to weave into the other things that we do, especially on the will writing side of things. But, you know, going back to what I said before, the, the, the reason we launched our funerals business in the first place was that we had hundreds of thousands of funeral wishes in our wills database. And for the most part, those wills were saying, I want something cheap and cheerful, do it on the South Downs or do it in my local pub rather than I want to be in my municipal you know, authority, crematorium. So we had this, in a way, predictive engine for the funerals of the future, and that's why we launched funerals in the first place. So each one of the products that we grow in, we learn more about what people need in the rest of the market, and that's allowed us to take a very sort of customer-first approach to new products launches. So you talked about the way in which your will writing, your probate, your funeral businesses, if you like, your silos have, have developed, Dan. Is the goal here for Farewell to almost be a, a, a go-to for uh, estate planning? Is not the right word, is it? But a go-to for, for, for death planning? I'd say for, for dealing with death. Yeah, absolutely. I think an unnecessarily large part of the problem when you're dealing with death is that you don't know where to start. So where we have a large number of customers across all of our products, we build a relationship with them in terms of the quality of our service and awareness of other products so they know they can come back to us when they need us. Probit's a particularly bad one um, for customer experience in general, where people mm. are like, I don't even know what Probit means. Yeah, yeah. Plus, my dad's just died, so I can't think straight, which is really just the neurological reality of it. I feel like I'm going to get ripped off. I don't know how long this takes. I don't know what it involves. Um, finding someone to to lead on the probate side of things is, is really hard. You know, there aren't many businesses that have any sort of brand recognition. So, so it can be a bit of the Wild West trying to find a provider that people feel comfortable with. And we find that, that where people have used us for other services, whether that's funerals or wills, they know they can trust us to deliver pretty much the market beating price and customer experience. What about the sort of slightly more medium to longer term plans? I mean, eight years is no time at all for business, is it? So what's the plans for Farewell? Um, well, I won't talk about it in, too, in, in specifics too much. Um, but I think we're very much just getting started. You know, we're the, we're, we're the, the biggest will writer in the UK, but it's still a fragmented industry. And I still think we have a lot more potential to grow. We're, we're quite obsessive about this customer origination issue, you know, how people know where to start and have confidence in, in that experience. And, and on the will side of things, at least, 
partnerships has been a massive part of our growth. Lots of that has been with charities. So we've made in pledged income for our charity partners almost 800 million pounds since we wow. started. I'm quite excited for that to hit the billion mark. And then from then on in, um, the 10 billion mark. I think that's a really meaningful GDP level contribution to people's lives. The other part of it, in terms of, you know, North Star of what we're aiming for, is there's just such interesting macro cultural trends in funerals. A good example of that is 2019, 3% of funerals, or actually about 2% of funerals are direct cremations. Mm-hmm. This year, it'll probably be about 20%. That's a huge shift, huge shift. 50 years ago, there were way fewer cremations. Now it's 80% of, of funerals in the UK are cremations. We're a far more secular country than we used to be. We're, we're increasingly less community-based, increasingly less nationalistic, um, which you know, is probably a good thing. Um, but it does mean that, that, you know, this probably one of life's three great spiritual moments is taking place without the guide rails and support systems of either community, religion, or cultural traditions. And people really need support when they go through that. There's an experiment that was done, I think in the 70s, called Homes and Raw Stress Scale, and it rates out of 100 how awful different life experiences are. It could be losing a limb or going to prison or getting married. And the thing that scores 100 out of 100 is the death of a spouse or a parent or a best friend. This is provably the worst thing that people experience in their life. And what we're really interested in here is how we support people through that experience of both preparing for a loss and then dealing with it to add what some of those things historically have given people when they're going through the process. And I think a lot of the rest of the sector is still quite focused on sticking to those traditions or or funeral practices and not recognizing that actually, you know, the music has stopped or at least it's changed. And I, I think that we have an important role to play in listening to what people's needs are and evolving our experience really on, particularly on the funeral side of things, um, to help people navigate such a monumentally challenging event in their lives. So we've seen the FCA start to regulate funerals and you've identified that you guys are going through that process. Do you see that regulation needs to change, that the industry needs to change? What's going to happen over the next two, five, ten years in, in, on the legal side of, of will writing in order to sort of make some of what you've just talked about happen, do you think? There's a few things I'm really interested in on a legislative basis. One is digital execution of wills. It's crazy now today that whether it's an LPA or a will, the thing that we're relying on is the actual backstop of authenticity of someone's wet signature is, mm-hmm. is less secure and reliable than even basic modern digital techniques. So I, so I think that that needs to, that needs to change. And, and the Office of the Public Guardian is driving towards this where they've mm-hmm. said they want the LPA process to be as easy as, as applying for a driving license. I think that's fantastic. I'm very happy to see that change. And with the rise in you know, dementia and people living to older ages in general. And I'm really supportive of that. The other slightly more contentious personal view that I have is that I really am supportive of people's right to die. If they're struggling with an illness and they don't want to do it, I I believe that that 
should change in the UK. And there are lots of other countries that have overcome objections to uh, safeguarding um, mm-hmm. and and carried that out. I think that that, in terms of the human cost and suffering, is something that I'm I'm, I'm really supportive of changing. There's some fantastic organisations working on it, like Compassion and Dying and Dignity and Dying. Close to our shores, Jersey have sort of made some progress on that, haven't they? Yeah, I would. Re- I hope that changes in the next ten years. Um, I'm really supportive of what the FCA has brought in on the funeral plan side of things, and that can sound like lip service. Of, you know, I, c- I can also say, hand on heart, it's painful. It's painful to go through the FCA process because it's rightfully it's strenuous and detailed because they're safeguarding customers who in many instances over the last couple of decades have been missold products or the funds have been mismanaged. So I think it's totally the right thing to do to, to, to bring in that sort of oversight and, and hopefully to give customers more, more confidence that, they're, that, they're, that they can rely on the products in the future. There's some of the lower key ones, but rights to die, you know, digital execution of wills, I think would really increase uptake. Yes, interesting times. We could probably talk for most of the rest of the day, Dan. I just want to very, very quickly, before we finish, touch on technology, because it's almost been absent from our conversation, which is crazy, considering that you're a a technology organisation. But clearly, you see technology as as an enabler. You've used it, as you say, to kind of really create this customer-centric focus. How do you see technology playing a role in this sector over the course of the next few years? And as a quick aside, talk to me about AI as well, because that's there's a lot of conjecture about the impact of AI. I see technology as a means to an end. And, and there is so much potential in all of our different products to deliver better customer experience through the use of technology, whether it's making ourselves easier to find making our processes internally far more scalable and effective, which means we can reduce our costs, which we then pass back to customers, or whether it's our use of data to spot opportunities in the market, like launching our funerals business that would go unnoticed otherwise. We here use technology to to improve customer outcomes. Or, you know, we've got some great use cases for it for the charities we work with, where we've been able to build really sophisticated tools for them to understand who's leaving money to them. And that's the kind of thing you just can't do without technological foundations. You'd have to just paper and count them on a blackboard and add them all up. It's just impossible. So it allows you to build really high quality customer experiences where, you know, you don't have to talk someone through stuff on the phone at the speed they can listen to it. You can absorb information, go back to it when you're using technology. So it allows you to build great product experiences. It allows you to automate things that should be automated internally and reduce your costs. And it gives you wild insight into customer behavior that would be impossible to get if you didn't have a technological foundation to the business. And that allows us, again, to improve the customer experience. So, so that's how I see it. On the AI side of things, I see it as two things simultaneously. A unbelievable evolution in intelligence on the, on the face of the earth unparalleled throughout all of human history and the next 10 years are going to be going to be pretty interesting and it might be the next 30 years that are pretty interesting um it has untold um opportunity for good in terms of disease in terms of education i think education is 
probably the most interesting application that, that I've seen so far, where there's this classic experiment where you look at educational outcomes from people who are taught in, you know, big classroom environments, very tight classroom environments, and then tutored one-on-one. And it's huge shifts across all, you know, factoring in all different types of um, situations where if you can have interactive, engaging one-on-one learning, educational outcomes are through the roof. Mm -hmm. If you can, and and that's the kind of thing that's just obviously unaffordable to the vast majority of people. And And AI is totally capable of remembering your whole learning history, of using the best possible, most modern techniques in explaining um, a subject matter to a kid or an adult and also morphing it to their style. So I I think that we're going to see an overall raising in in human intelligence and capability with AI as a really uh, essential conduit to that. And I think it's absolutely terrifying and we're going to see massive... um, disparity in in um probably as we start to get used to this in in outcomes of people who are on you know the side of the line where super white collar and they're benefiting from ai interesting i don't think it's blue collar workers will be affected as much it's more white collar workers whose work can be automated or not so so that's that's a pretty challenging place to be you're saying in your business you saw the opportunity to not replace admin roles but to augment them to actually make them much more profitable, make them much more um, high impact. Basically, just, you. You, can, you can deliver a much better quality of experience. A use case where it's got tons of potential is customer service, where you know we have, we have a massive back catalog of the way that we've interacted with customers. And as we start to scale, this for us isn't about downsizing our team. It's about enabling each person in our team who works serving, you know, really just hundreds of thousands of customers is able to amplify their impact. So, you know, you, you can definitely get to a point where if you're asking questions about someone's forgotten their password or account details or this, they're, they're checking in on the status of their will, that stuff you can automate to a really, really high um, degree of accuracy. So, so I think, you know, again, everything here is from a customer's first perspective. If we can give people immediate answers to their questions rather than having to wait let's say an hour for an answer if they've emailed us that's great and and if we can be really confident that we're giving them the right answers trained on our data that we have from eight years of serving hundreds of thousands of customers then that's just better for everyone Uh, so i think i think customer service is a real interesting opportunity but i'm not blind to the to the fact that if one person in our team can suddenly do the work of 10, well, that's nine hypothetical jobs of the future that are taken off the table. So, so yeah, this is stuff is going to change. And I'm, I'm not a Luddite or a pessimist or anti-technologist at all, but this is not the loom. You know, this is a different paradigm of competition with human capability. And, and anytime those things arise, there's always a, a, a painful, conflicted, dip as the world reconciles itself with the potentials of the technology and and also training you know you have people who are leaving school now after 15 years of conventional education who are coming into just a different landscape and the countries that will do best with this are the ones that really have a ai first education system that's i think where where everyone should be focusing alongside focusing on the reg on the regulatory side of things because this is powerful powerful weapon when it comes to disinformation 
scams and and it's a weird way to end the podcast on but, but warfare like this is it's, it's terrifying turn of the screw in the in I, I think this is a hundred times more dangerous than nuclear weapons so yeah i mean you know hopefully we'll still be alive in a few years to 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 see how this stuff pans out and maybe it will just be really boring maybe it will just be mundane and actually it's kind of crap and and nothing changes but those things are all definitely they're all possible you're right. It's a weird way to end a podcast, but we're we're going to have to end. We've we've been chatting for, well, we've been chatting for about an hour. Once this gets edited down, it'll be slightly less than that. But I can't thank you enough, Dan, for joining the podcast. I think two things for me really come out of of today. One, it's been really interesting to hear the farewell journey. I hope you've debunked a few myths that people might feel about the organisation. And as you said, perhaps there might be a few who've who've previously sat on the fence who might be otherwise convinced. But I think the second thing that's really come out of this is um, some insight into you as an individual. Very clearly, you're a very driven, um, but also a very interesting person. So thanks very, very much indeed for joining the podcast. Oh, thanks so much for having me and uh, look forward to seeing you again soon. The Today's Wills and Probate podcast is available on your preferred podcast provider. It's also available on today's willsandprobate.co.uk. My thanks to Dan. Thank you for listening and we'll see you again soon. You're listening to the Today's Wills and Probate podcast, one of the leading sources of information for the wills and probate sector. Don't forget to subscribe and sign up to our free newsletter at todayswillsandprobate.co.uk and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter.